The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Have you ever had one of those moments where, when you're talking to someone and they describe a certain situation or diagnose a problem and you realise they've just diagnosed your problem? Well, I had one of those experiences this week. In our podcast about working from home, about burnout, and about how the new culture of work in a hybrid work, working from home environment is changing, and how that's changing the way we live and hitting particular groups of people particularly hard. This week, I spoke to Jackie McGuire, who's a clinical psychologist in Wellington, and asked about burnout and the signs of burnout. She described that uh, a particular increase in cynicism, of blaming the authorities, of being less productive, less precise, all of those symptoms describe people who are having burnout. And she'd seen a lot of it in the last year, of course, with people having to work from home. Suddenly dawned on me as she was saying this, that I'd experienced burnout. Like many people, uh, we had this intense experience last year during the first lockdowns, where we had to work extremely hard for extremely long hours in unfamiliar places. And we had to change the wiring of our brains a bit to uh, do things differently and at a very high pace. And after a while, I got pretty tired and um, uh, eventually changed my situation in a way that um, that worked for me and for lots of other reasons as well. But um, I did wonder at the time whether I'd, I'd had a classic burnout and uh, J- Jackie's uh, diagnosis was pretty accurate. But I'm not the only one, and I'm sure you all know of uh, people who have really struggled through the lockdown to work from home, particularly with families and in a situation where it went on for longer than you expected. And unfortunately, we're now in that situation, seven weeks into the longest lockdown Auckland has ever had, and the rest of the country is still at level two restrictions. And with now the end of the elimination strategy, the prospect that this period will go on, for at least until Christmas. And the dawning realisation really that we're in a new era where for a lot of people, working from home will be a normal thing. And that hybrid work, a combination of being online, using all sorts of uh, uh, tools to cooperate and communicate with people online, will go hand in hand with going into the office occasionally. Now, that's not for everyone, but for a lot of people who previously um, got used to going into the office, commuting, that may well be ending. Many companies are now reducing their footprints with their leaseholds in their offices. A lot of people actually quite like this. And this week we speak to Rowan Simpson, who is a bit of a legend in New Zealand's tech community and its startup community, heavily involved with the growth of TradeMe, Zero, Vend, Timely, and is really experienced in pulling together teams of 
people who know how to produce things online. And he's talked about this intense period over the last year and how it's changed the culture of work for startups and techs, how some people have done really, really well uh, without all of the kerfuffle of being in the office and trying to impress the boss or maybe engaging in a bit of presenteeism. Those people have done quite well. However, there are others where it's been a real struggle. And one of the takeaways from this week's episode of When the Facts Change is that just as we've seen during the vaccination program, our existing inequities and inequalities have been exposed in this COVID outbreak. Where now it's clear that young Māori in particular and young Pacifica are being vaccinated at much lower rates for all sorts of reasons, not having access to the usual health services or not being in contact with the authorities or maybe not trusting the authorities. They're the ones who have certainly suffered the most in this latest Delta outbreak and are at the most at risk if this outbreak gets much, much worse over the coming months because they're the least vaccinated in the country. But it's also the same in the economic and work sphere. We've found that those people in precarious work, work that often involves two or three jobs, often at minimum wage, or people who are juggling, you know, family, several jobs, maybe other uh, wider commitments to family and their community, they have really struggled because not only have they got the normal um, full up to the brim workload, but now they have to do it at home. And it's clear now from particularly those places where they've had the longest lockdowns, like uh, America and Europe, that there's an underlying shift going on in the labour market. Women, particularly with younger children, are exiting the workforce under the stress. In America, they call it quit Mageddon, and it's a real thing. Lots of uh, women who worked through the lockdown were um, really in many cases, burnt out in a position where um, they didn't have the right technology. Uh, they were working extremely long hours, having to deal with all of the the load of family life as well. And the pain of it became much more than it was worth. And they've essentially quit their jobs. Now, some people can afford to do that, but a lot can't, particularly in a society and economy where we've built our financial structures, you know, the house that we've bought, the mortgage that we've got on it, around the idea that both of the partners in the household can work, and in some cases work full time. And that is going to throw many people out, because many people have experienced the sort of stress involved and the burnout of working from home. This is important for employers, of course, and we hear from both Jackie and Rowan about the sorts of things that managers, directors, colleagues can do to notice the problems, to uh, make sure that people have what they need to work from home in a productive and safe way. It's important now, under the health and safety rules, that directors get that right because that, that sort of stress family stress, mental stress, not only increases your uh, employment churn rates, but of course, we're talking about colleagues and friends here who are in real trouble. That's this week in When the Facts Change, we're talking about working from home, hybrid work, burnout, 
and how it's changing the culture of work. I'm Bernard Hickey in a podcast brought to you on the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. And welcome to When the Facts Change to Rowan Simpson, who I've known for a, a few years and is just quietly a bit of a legend in the tech community in New Zealand. For 20 years, he's been building tech companies, amongst them Trade Me, Vend and Zero are some of the more um, prominent ones, and most recently, uh, Timely. Rowan, you've been working in groups for a long time, building things with ones and zeros, coding. How do you think that working from home and the various disruptions to actually physically being in place together has changed the sort of culture of how startups and tech companies work? Yeah, thanks, Ben. I mean, working from home feels like one of those expressions we've all just suddenly learnt in the last 18 months, doesn't it? And I mean, I think the important bit is the bit that you missed out, which is working from home during a pandemic. And those last those last bits are actually quite material. I think, you know, the, the idea of remote work or asynchronous work has been around for a long time. And, and there have been teams that have worked that way for a number of years. And I've been lucky to be part of a couple of those teams. And we can talk about that maybe. But, you know, this, this COVID era has been a, a great acceleration of that trend. A lot more people have suddenly found themselves in that position. Um, and I think it's worth acknowledging it's very, very different from the experience of remote work or asynchronous work generally. Like, the, you know, the experience of doing that during a pandemic is pretty wild. Particularly know. if you've got, you know, family and stuff happening yeah. in the background and you're suddenly having to yeah, exactly. build yourself I mean, an I mean, office at the back of the bedroom. Exactly. I mean, the, I mean, one of the deceits of the name working from home, you know, remote work doesn't always mean at home, but during a pandemic it means exclusively at home. So, you know, that... That obviously means very unevenly distributed results for different people depending on their circumstances at home. Um, you know, especially for those with younger school age kids, um, juggling work from home and homeschooling um, in a small working space that's not designed for for work. Um, that's basically a recipe for disaster. And I think a lot of people have had that experience in the last eighteen months, which is a shame, really, because you know there's lots of different flavours of remote work, and most people have experienced a very bitter one in the last recent times. Um, you will have spent lots of time uh, standing around um, whiteboards with post-it notes and various other things, people bouncing off each other, coming up with ideas, organising plans, and you feel like you're you know, part of a team, you've got a mission, you're, you've got a plan. Um, how m- much harder is it, or maybe it's easier, to do that sort of thing when you're working asynchronously? And you know, what have you seen in the last 18 months or so? Yeah, I mean, it's very different and it is it's a whole different set of skills, especially around communication and coordination, as you say. And I think, you know, this is where, again, we need to differentiate remote work from remote work during a pandemic. Like, you know, there are a growing suite of tools that really um, allow people to not be in the same place at the, at the same time as they do their work. Um, but those are whole new skills for teams to develop in terms of how they work how they work with others and, and all of those things. And yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting that the best form of remote work or the ideal form of remote work is actually a hybrid of remote and in-person. And so, you know, in 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 the good old days, remote teams would often make a, a real concerted effort to get together at different times during the year, um, both to do the things you've described, you know, stand in front of a whiteboard and do those kind of high bandwidth conversations that need a whiteboard um, but also just to break bread and spend time together which is which is really important too so 
you know, you can try and replicate those things. One of the things we do in our team, for example, every Wednesday, 2 p.m., we have a water cooler, which is a one-hour Zoom call where work conversation is banned. It's all about just spending time together and getting to know each other as humans. And uh, one of the interesting things about um, work culture, pre-pandemic, uh, you'd often have people who were um, you know, really good at being at the office a lot, <laughs> hanging yeah, around the boss, yeah. you know, playing golf, um, doing whatever it is, you know, uh, that's often how businesses work. It's about people who spend a lot of time with each other, who trust each other and are in the right place at the right time. And one way some people see to get ahead is to be present. And so you have a presenteeism issue, Mm. whereas some people are actually better at um, being on their own, um, working through their uh, lists and uh, not having to deal, frankly, with the, the loud mouth in the in the meetings. Um, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> could you give us a sense of how maybe during the pandemic and with so many people working from home, how that's changed the balance of the culture or what it means? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I've observed is that in this kind of rush to stand up remote work, lots of teams have just replicated their way of working, but with the team spread in different locations. And so, I mean, I think this is the cause of Zoom fatigue, which is a which is a growing problem, right? Where people have spent their whole day in meetings on video calls, and that's exhausting. That's exhausting. And remote teams pre-COVID times would never work that way, or the good ones would never work that way. But that is how many teams have stood up. Yeah, and I think you make an excellent point, which is that um, you know when the ways of working change, different people are going to thrive. Um, so the people who were most successful in that sort of everybody in the same office at the same time way of working are not necessarily going to be the most effective in remote teams. Um, and so, yeah, I guess different different teams have to deal with that in their own way. Um, you know, I've certainly noticed that those who are most vocal about getting back to the office tend to be those who were most successful in that kind of everybody in the office at the same time way of working. Um, but, you know, there are, there are different people who thrive under different circumstances. I think it's one of the real benefits of remote work, which is not often well understood, is it really lets you flip that kind of script where, you know, you are now in control of your own schedule, you're now in control of your own workspace. Um, and, and so you can coordinate your other commitments around your work rather than vice versa, um, you know. And I think, as I say, that really opens up massive opportunities for people who couldn't thrive in the old way of working. They've uh, worked, particularly in recent times, with a bunch of companies that have done a lot of things uh, remotely. Um, Timely is, um, is mm. one example. Could you give us a sense of how, you know, for some companies, this is actually an opportunity. They can, they're really good at working in that hybrid way, at, at onboarding um, uh, new, new people so that they can work from home. You know, for some people, this actually could be a bit of an opportunity. Yeah, and I think, I mean, Timely is a poster child for this, right? They've, they've had amazing success with a fully distributed team. And there's a little bit of post-rationalization risk here because uh, the reason that they ended up being a remote team was through necessity, not through design. So when they first started that company, the three founders, one was based in Dunedin, one was based in Romati, and one was living in Malta, of all places. Um, and so they were remote by necessity, and so they were forced to kind of stand up the tools and processes and ways of walking that we were talking about to allow that to work at all. Um, but what they quickly discovered was it also creates this real great opportunity to you know hire people who they otherwise wouldn't have been able to hire 
and have people work very effectively in ways that they wouldn't have been able to work effectively if they'd insisted on everybody being in an office in Dunedin, for example. Does it widen the pool of talent who can come in, you know, particularly women, maybe a bit older, they've got various uh, family and other commitments, which means they have to be at home more often, and get some more diversity into a workforce which has been, um, well, notorious or um, known for being quite a, a place for for young men. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right, but also don't overlook the flexibility that that way of working creates for young men too. There's, there's um, you know, several dads in the Timely team who are able to be much more effective dads or people who, you know, recently separated, those sorts of things, but were able to organise their lives around that. So, you know, for all people, that's true, not, not just, but yeah, it's definitely true that they were, you know, Timely was able to recruit people that they would never have been able to recruit otherwise if they had been more insistent on a specific way of working. You, you work at a sort of a governance level as a, as a director or on a board. So you're, you're having to mentor executives, um, look at how a, a team of managers or a team of organisers are working. What sort of advice or tips could you give them to you know, help avoid some of the, the bad things about um, working from home or that, this hybrid style and some ways that make it more effective? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of really good ones which I'll get to, but first to just acknowledge that this has forced boards to change the way they work as well. And, you know, I, I feel like I've experienced both ends of that spectrum where some have, you know, buried their old ways of working and completely reinvented that and others are, you know, still clinging on desperate to get back to monthly in-person meetings but yeah there, there are desperate there, there are definitely a couple of real big costs to remote work which boards and management teams need to consider one is i think there's a real myth that remote work is cheaper for a company and that's definitely not our experience it's definitely not timely's experience um you know working from home does shift a bunch of costs onto employees um, and so companies that want to stand this up and do it well need to really acknowledge that and reflect that in the way that um, that they work with their team, um, the way that even people are compensated, you know, to around all of that. Um, and yeah, and there's a real shift in terms of management style too. And this is maybe one of those examples we were talking about where people have just shifted their old ways of working. You know, when you're all in the office, you can observe people and you can, you know, manage by hovering behind them if that's your, if that's your chosen style. When you're all working remotely, you just can't do that. So you need to you need to really level up and manage much more based on outcomes rather than inputs, these sorts of things. Um, and that is a shift for people. I, I think, you know, when, when you come out of a culture which works one particular way and into a culture which works another way, you have to learn a whole bunch of new skills. And that's true for remote work, asynchronous work too. Yeah, and there's all sorts of tools now that we, we all use, um, some different flavours, some better for some and not for others. Uh, we all, you know, have become, uh, I wouldn't call it experts, but, um, or maybe slaves to, to Slack <laughs> or, um, mm. you know, uh, what, are the, what are the best ways to work with these sorts of things to make them human? Because one thing I've noticed, uh, particularly with Slack, is that it, it speeds up the, the type of communication and sometimes the intensity it can be quite an anxious <laughs> anxious mm. thing tell mm. us mm. Uh, you know how how to how people are managing that in ways that are, that work for them yeah and i mean it's like anything any tool can be used for for good or bad right and so it's how you use the tools it's the culture that you have in your team around the tools rather than the tools themselves that make them successful or not 
Um, but yeah, a lot of these tools are really developing a lot of features that are, you know, are designed first for remote teams, if you like. Um, and I think this is where you can start to make the distinction between remote and asynchronous. So when you when you all work in the in the office in the same place together at the same time, you're kind of coordinated in two ways. You're coordinated in place and in time. So, um, you know, a meeting is in room number three at 11.30 a.m. Everybody knows where that is and when that is. But, um, you know, remote work allows you to not all be in the same place at the same time. Asynchronous work means organizing yourselves in a way where you're not all expecting to be available at the same time or working at the same time. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of things like just to give you one specific example, Slack's recently implemented a feature where you can, you know, write a message to a colleague or to a group of colleagues and have that be posted at a different time. So, for example, if you if something occurs to you over the weekend and, you know, you can type that message but have it be posted at, at nine o'clock on the Monday morning. And so just little things like that make those tools a little bit more human, um, a little bit more humane, maybe. Another thing that tech companies, startups have to think about is connecting with capital, venture capitalists, um, people mm. who are uh, able to invest and maybe have the experience. And for a lot of New Zealand companies over the last decade or, or two, that has meant getting to San Francisco or Sydney mm. or Melbourne and hooking up with the venture capitalists and you know telling the story and making the pitch and you know, um, hoping the systems work when you do, do the presentation. Uh, but for now, 18 months, and it looks like for some time longer, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very difficult for a lot of the uh, startup founders and um, people who want to connect to those networks of capital and experience in, let's say, the United States or London or um, in, increasingly in Australia. So mm. how are the companies that you're working with dealing with that or thinking about it or planning for it? Yeah, I mean, you're scratching at some scar tissue there, Bernard, because I, I mean, I definitely spent a lot of time in the States trying to raise money for Vend, for example. We went you know, and, and pitched many of the big VCs in Sand Hill Road, um, and that was definitely an experience. I mean, one of the things I guess I learned in that process is one of the first questions we would ask them is, you know, trying to understand whether they had a passport or not, because there's a class of global investor that, you know, imagines New Zealand to be this very remote and scary place and another class of a global investor who has no fears about that at all. But I mean, I think, I think you just have to look at the evidence and the evidence would suggest that companies have been able to be sold through this pandemic era without any issue to, to international buyers. Companies have been able to attract investment and there's been deals announced just this week where large you know, Aussie VC funds have invested in New Zealand companies. Certainly in Timely's case, that, that transaction was negotiated entirely remotely, which is probably appropriate given that, you know, that they're a remote team. That kind of fits the, fits the narrative. But um, you know, these, th these things are still possible, I think, even under these circumstances. And as I said before, the ideal is hybrid. So I think, you know, the ideal is still that, you know, commerce would be a mixture of remote and in-person, but, um, but maybe, maybe increasingly remote, if that makes sense. That's right. Although now, uh, as opposed to you know, 10, 20 years ago, there is a, a bigger pool of uh, talent and funds and experience of people in New Zealand who have uh, maybe mm. exited their business or moved on, um, which I, I, I wonder if some uh, tech companies here always default to, well, I'm off to Sydney or Melbourne or 
or San Francisco. Maybe, yeah. Although I think, I mean, the way I would kind of explain that is I think that the world is collapsing into a global market in some ways and that, you know that, that venture capital market is definitely true so you know where the where the investor happens to live or where the where the founders of the company happen to live is becoming increasingly irrelevant and I mean this this is useful too in terms of remote work right like we we talk about New Zealand companies working with their New Zealand team remotely but it's also true that if you're a smart engineer in New Zealand now the pool of companies that you're available to work for is global. And so, you know, one of the competitive advantages that New Zealand tech companies have had historically is that they've been able to hire New Zealanders at lower than global engineer rates and have their engineering team based in New Zealand, but their customers all around the world. Whereas now, increasingly, New Zealand companies are hiring engineers at global rates because those engineers can work remotely for companies anywhere. So, you know, it does, it does really, as I said before, flip the script a little bit in multiple ways. You've been around for a while um, and you've seen some big trends come and go. Uh, initially, when COVID struck, and New Zealand is in, in a unique position where we had a very short and sharp lockdown and then we sort of went back to normal. But it mm. looks like now, um, you know, 18 months in, we're still on a seven-week lockdown. Um, we've seen how it's dragged on and on and on in uh, America and, and Europe. And now there seems to be, you know, it's settling down into a different place. How do you think in the long run we'll look back at this period of um, you know, rapid adoption of these remote working practices and technologies? How do you think in the long run it's going to change, you know, the the tech world, how we work in businesses together, particularly in the, in, in the tech businesses. Yeah, I'm not sure that many startup folks would say that we went back to normal because normal normal for the average New Zealand founder or investor, you know, involved a lot of time on NZ8 to San Francisco, for example, or a lot of time, um, you know, overseas with the teams that are based overseas. So, you know, Vend and Timely both had teams in multiple countries working on those businesses that were so-called New Zealand businesses and the founders of those companies or the execs of those companies spend a lot of time with those teams overseas. So the last 18 months has not been normal by any sense, really, even for those companies that, that can work remotely more effectively. But yeah, I think to answer your question, I think change always happens slowly and then rapidly. And I think that, I think that as I said before, that this is, this is a ex- period of acceleration. Like these, these trends are not entirely new, but the number of people who've been exposed to them has been minuscule, and now all of a sudden, that's that's um, that change is kind of hitting more people at pace. And so, I think it's impossible to say how we're going to look back on it. It's it still feels like we're in the middle of it. So I, I don't know. I don't even know where where the so-called end of that might be. But it's definitely true. I think to say that um, that we're not going back to 2019. Ryan Simpson um, talking to us remotely from. <laughs> From, from Nelson. Wonderful to talk to you and thank you for, for being with us on When the Facts Change. As always, Bernard, thank you. Well, Ron's right about that. But what does the future look like at home? We talk now to Jackie Maguire, who's a clinical psychologist in Wellington, about what's happening in the home and who it's affecting most. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, 
last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. And welcome to Jackie Maguire, who is a clinical psychologist from Wellington. Uh, Thank you very much, Jackie, for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks, Bruno, for having me. I'm trying to understand what life and working life is like for many families, particularly with kids, during this new hybrid style of work. Now that we know that lockdown is not just a one-off six-week thing, It's really dragging on. Can you tell us what you're seeing and hearing from lots of people out there? Yeah, well, I'll I'll tell you for myself, it's tough. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll take myself as a good uh, sample of the general population. Um, You know, I I think for many families across New Zealand and now especially in Auckland at the moment, you know, when you are trying to uh, give to many roles in your life, be that parent, be that partner, be that worker, you know, there's huge role conflict uh, and that's very difficult. So, you know, if we think about working from home and I know it's I know it's important to stress the message that we're in a pandemic attempting to work from home, we're not just working from home and many organisations have taken that on board, which is great. But lots of people also have internal standards and, and they're doing their best to to give to as many places as possible. Uh, but when we look at the research of, you know, what makes good working from home and, and what makes tough working from home in relation to well-being, which is my focus as a psychologist, you know, part-time work from home where you have really good organisational support, where you've got low work work-family conflict, so you don't have competing demands, uh, where you're cutting out um, commutes, etc., and you've got good technical support and you've got collegial support, and those factors uh, mean your well-being is improved by part-time, part-time being the operative word there, work from home. When you then look at what happens when you've got full-time work from home, we see that becomes far more difficult to get that collegial and, and leadership support, which is critical to work from home being successful. Um, you know, 
role clarity is harder to define, like what should I be doing and how should I be doing that when I don't have people around me just to check in. And it's very clear both in the research and what I'm hearing on the ground and seeing when I work with organisations is that for females in particular who who often carry the mental load of families, so not just the physical child caring, uh, you know, schooling at the moment, but just that, just that mental pressure of who's where and what they're doing and what the family needs to be doing to operate, plus now this, uh, you know, work-family conflict 24-7 is meaning it is pretty hard for a lot of people. So particularly in the way that it started, a lot of people occasionally do bits and pieces of work from home. But once it was, uh, you know, right through the day and for significantly long periods of time, particularly Auckland now, seven weeks in lockdown, uh, a lot of people didn't really have their lives or their homes, the physical setup for it. You know, I'm talking to you from, from a bedroom and I'm sure there's a few others in that situation. How much of a extra strain was the sort of jury-rigged, you know, make-it-up-as-you-go-along nature of it? Yeah, well, I think when we look at personalities around work, um, at a crude level, there are integrators and segregators. And integrators like work and work and family to be all mixed in together and they manage that okay. I'm an integrator. I find it all right. It's probably not ideal at times, but it's okay. Segregators like, like it to be completely separate. When I'm at work, I'm at work. And when I'm at home, I'm at home. Uh, and especially for segregators right now, um, you know, that, that's a challenge. And so, you know, the, the basic setup things like do you have a designated area to work where you can shut the door when you leave so that work isn't looking at you, for example, is important. Things like getting routine, so getting up, having a shower, and even walking around the block to um, replicate a commute for segregators is really important. Um, if you've got elderly parents, children, other people in your home, you know, the distraction just simply from noise will be very hard for segregators. So, you know, I, I think, you know, those base setups, not only from a logistical point of view, uh, is really important, but then in the way we're working right now, do you have all the technical requirements for working? So when you think about stress uh, you know, generally and how that impacts our well-being. Stress hormones are really good short-term for high performance, but we don't want them hanging around all the time. Techno-stress, which is what they've, you know, what they're calling it, is very real. It's bloody annoying to be sitting with your computer rebooting to try and join the Zoom for someone to have and not admitted you into the meeting, etc. It just adds like complete layers of complexity on top of an already stressful time. Yeah, so what sort of um, tactics or techniques can people both at home but also managers uh, who mm. are setting expectations and providing tech and um, trying to understand why things aren't going right? Yeah, so I'm going to start with the organisation first because I often feel that solutions are pinpointed to individuals when often there are organisational requirements that need to happen. So... Um, there are some very uh, consistent factors that need to be present for people to be doing well from a working from home perspective. And I should just point out here that prior to COVID-19, we found that those that part-time worked from home 
were very wedded to that, like that part-time nature gave them time back in their day, gave them that flexibility. But also on the flip side, it often meant that workers became more transactional in their work. So they were wed and loyal to the type of working, the flexible working, but not to the organisation. And organisations will want their people through this time to stay loyal to the organisation. So, you know, this is really critical that that orgs are, are getting this right. So there are some researchers in Australia and they have come up with what they call um, the SMART working framework, which says that if we're going to enable people to do the best they can from home, their work needs to be stimulating. So what are people doing at home? Does it actually like, does it get them going? Does it get them intrigued? That they have to have a sense of mastery from their work. So I feel like I'm actually achieving something when I'm working from home. And in general at the moment, with a lot of people languishing, which is the new hot word out there, one that I've been using for years, but it's creeped its way into regular language these days, um, which is that feeling of meh, really, and kind of lack of motivation, etc. Getting a sense of small wins and feeling like you're actually achieving something and having a, a sense of mastery is really important for well-being and a working perspective as well. So I've got stimulating work, that I feel like I'm doing well in mastery. The A is agency or autonomy. And so this is critical for leaders. Like, are you giving people the ability to uh, do the work in ways that work for them and in a way in which they are leading it, which is the opposite to micromanagement, right? So that agency is also about how you're working at home. Is there discussions around... um, you know, Bernard, for you, with your family requirements, when would it be best for you to be working times of the day? You know, how how, how does that work for you? If we needed team meetings, et cetera, you know, when does that fit in? And working with the team to best as possible, because there's never a perfect solution, but to try and find ways where people can hold agency over, you know, the way they work. You know, normally as a psychologist, I wouldn't be recommending that you work after dinner for long hours because that's not good work-life balance. But actually, maybe at the moment, you need to do that because you've been teacher during the day, you know, and is there flexibility in that from work? The R is relational contact. So human connection and relationships is absolutely critical to functioning well as an individual, not only from a well-being perspective, but then also on performance. So feeling like you've got good support, feeling like your team's got each other's backs, feeling like your leader's got your back, uh, having good interaction is really, is really critical. Um, And so how do we replicate that at home? Uh, You know, and so being able to have regular check-ins with your team, even from a research perspective, having a period of time in the day where everybody's online, research says that just seeing the little green light, for example, on teams where your team's all online means that people feel connected because they're all in it together, you know, and the work goes up. So it's like, are there periods of time where you're all working? Um, and after COVID, you know, when we go back to the real world, um, it's very clear, hopefully, we go back to the real world, it's, ve- it's very clear that full-time work from home is not good for us because we miss out on that connection and it's critical. So, you know, two days at home and three days in the office, for example, is going to be much better from a well-being and productivity perspective than full-time work from home. 
the last bit there, the SMART. So we've got stimulating mastery, agency, relational contact, and the T is tolerable demands. And so that absolutely is about the load perspective, which links to burnout. So the risk right now is that people are burning out because A, they're physically fatigued from COVID and their fight or flight system has been on for over 20 months now. We also then have organisations that have uh, redeployed people so that, um, you know, we're working in different ways and demands have gone up in different areas. So people are being shuffled around, especially in organisations where, for example, Liberians that might not have been able to work in level four, some of them have been redeployed and working in other areas in council, for example. And so, you know, looking at that job demand, is it tolerable for people also means that we're enabling people to sustainably work, not burning them from both ends. So that's quite a useful um, guideline for leaders and organisations. You know, and I'd encourage leaders to, in their next one-on-ones with their team members, actually go through that model and say, you know, on a scale of one to ten, rate those for me. You know, how's it going? One being it's shit and ten being we're nailing it. Like, where do you sit on that line and have some really um, candid conversations about that? So that's kind of from the organisational perspective. And, of course, if the leader is leading that, who's supporting the leader? And that's a bigger question for the organisation because they've got double load there in the sandwich the meat and the sandwich. And and then from an individual perspective, I think that is about what do you you need uh, to be getting through this period of time the best as possible? And let's let's cut the rose-tinted glasses that we're all going to be like flourishing through this period of time because you might be, but a lot of us aren't. So how do we just how how do we do the best we can and and maintain our relationships and maintain our mood, you know, as as well as we can through this time. And so I think that is about really asking yourself and your bubble, what are our working styles? What do we need in order uh, for when we're at work to be feeling like we're achieving something and for when we're at home? And so it will look different for different families. Bernard, you know, some will have schedules between parents where they're, you know, they're either on work or on on parenting. Others others couple up and they school together and then they give the kids free time and then they both go and work. Some families will want their kids doing schoolwork. Other families will go, actually stuff the schoolwork, you know, teaching my kids life skills through this period of time is better for us as a family and good for them and their learning. Um, so I think the awareness piece there and knowing your needs and being able to communicate well both at home and with your employer is actually the skill sets that will help get you through. You mentioned burnouts there. Um, For some people where this is a a new thing may not recognise it. Um, How do you help organisations and people recognise burnout and then deal with it in a way that um, works for everyone? Yes, yeah, so, so, so there are three key signs of burnout. One is fatigue, and it's not just I feel tired today and a good eight hours sleep will fix me. It is I am physically and mentally exhausted. I'm burnt at both ends. I have got nothing left to give to anyone. Um, the second is cynicism. So I just start to get cynical about myself, my employer, the government, you know, anything. You know, I just, my my cynicism goes up. 
And the third is that I don't believe in my effectiveness. So I don't feel like I'm actually doing anything useful anywhere. So what's the kind of the point of continuing to try? And so, you know, if you look at those three three signs, fatigue, cynicism, lack of effectiveness, um, they're the kind of broad domains of what you might spot in yourself or what you might see in other people. And of course, alongside that, you then often get drops in mood and people can become you know, experience symptoms of depression with that. Um, you know, if you're at a managerial perspective, uh, at the end of burnout, um, productivity or uh, precision in work is likely to go down. However, before that, uh, you know, if somebody's been keeping their performance up with low well-being, that's the precursor to burnout, which we want to be catching beforehand. So performance is not necessarily a sign because you might have a very high performer that's not looking after their well-being and they can track for so long and then, and then they burn out. If you then look at the preventable nature of burnout, um, there are many models and factors you can use to look at that. Um, there's a model which is called the... Um, Job, well, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. One is looking at workload. So, you know, the first factor we can look at is how loaded are people. And, of course, if we can reduce load, their likelihood of burnout is likely to come down. Um, the second the second is then around that autonomy or how I'm working. So if I've got more control over the work that I'm doing, that's a that's a. Um, it's a buffer for me. If I've got less control over what I'm doing, that's a risk factor. And the third element to look at is if I've got really high workload and I've got really low control over what I'm doing, is it inevitable that I'm going to burn out? And the answer is no, because really good support from your team can actually protect you. So, you know, we don't want people with high loads and we don't want people with no autonomy, but in some situations that is the way it works. And, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of think of our military in battle, <laughs> you know, but actually they're often protected because they've got extremely strong units and extremely strong relationships within their teams. So, you know, looking at load, looking at um, ways of work in terms of their agency autonomy and then that social support. Um, so from an organisational perspective, it's looking at things like that, you know, What's on what's on people's plates in terms of load, and do we prioritise and keep a track on that all the time? Like, am I having check-ins with the whole team around the projects we've got on, and who's doing what, and who can jump into support? What's the level of reward and recognition for people's work? Because that's a protective factor. Is there fairness in the team? Because perceived injustice is a risk factor for burnout. Um, you know, do we have good psychological safety and support in our teams? Do we feel like people can speak up without um, other people slamming them or judging them or et cetera? That's really important. So there's those org factors, Bernard. And then, of course, as humans, we have a role to play too. And um, it's quite useful to look at what are my internal rules for myself when life gets stressful? Um, and there are there are some internal rules that are really good at helping us in the short term, but really unhelpful for our well-being in the long term. So it's quite helpful for people to ask themselves, when I get stressed, what? how do I respond? Do I have an internal mechanism that says, Jackie, you just need to be faster? Or <laughs> Jackie, you just need to be stronger? 
or Jackie, you just need to keep doing things perfectly and it will be okay. Or Jackie, you just need to help others and if you keep others, it will be all right. So if you can start to look at some of these internal um, rules, do you have any of those? I need to be stronger, faster, better, perfect or serve others. And actually, if that's your kind of automatic kick-in system when things get hard, you know, long term, that is going to be really unhelpful for your well-being, um, and for your and for your work, and for your family, and for you as a human. So it's kind of being able to recognise that and go, how might how might I, I retrain my brain? You know, and if you've been living like that for fifty years, it's going to take time to retrain that, right? We've got to be we've got to you know be very open about that. But but our brains are plastic, and we can learn to do it differently. So. You know, when I am under load and stress, rather than going, I'm just going to keep going, I'm not going to take a break, I'll just work harder, maybe I go, actually, it's really important that I take pauses, that I go and do something that I enjoy, that I go out into nature because nature reduces my stress levels, that I connect with people that I care about. And then when I come back, I'm calm, I'm refreshed, I'm focused, and I'm actually going to be effective in what I'm doing. That's a really interesting um, way to look at it, particularly the the signs of uh, of burnout. I'm curious: have you seen a higher incidence of burnout and stress and um, family situations, personal yes. crises in the last eighteen yes. months? Yeah. Yes, and and I think that's I think we would expect that given the situations that we find ourselves in. So yes, people are tired. People are really, really tired. And, you know, I've just been saying to people, let's forget the psychological language. The reality is people are over it, Bernard. People are mm. absolutely over lockdowns. They're over COVID. Um, I don't think people are necessarily tied to wanting their old life back, but people just want freedom back um, and abilities to make choices for themselves. I think that's really clear. Um, and so... You know, again, when you think about why that might be the case, you know, we've been living for, again, 20 months without that sense of control, with going in and out of lockdowns. Uh, we've lost, normally at the start of a crisis, Bernard, you get a drop in well-being and then you get what's called a honeymoon effect because we have this community, we pull together, we're a team of five million, we can do it and we get the, we get the human spirit coming through. I think what's really clear now is that that's diminished again, probably because people are burnt out and fatigued from being on edge and from having to live in a different way for so long. It takes huge effort for your brain to think, I need to put a mask on. I need to sign in in my QR code. I need to work out how to be online. It's fatiguing to work on Zoom. There's huge research <laughs> around why Zoom, for example, is fatiguing compared to being in a room with people. Um, and so, yes, yes, burnout is higher. Um, levels of satisfaction are lower. I think tensions in families are higher. And again, you know, it might sound crude, but we're a little bit like caged animals at the moment, <laughs> aren't we? There's a lack of there's a lack of variety. We're all stuck at, you know, you're stuck with your bubble, especially if you're in Auckland right now, all together. And no matter how much you love the people you live with or like the people you work with, you need you need space. Everyone does in their own way. Um, to stay well. And so, you know, I think holding compassion right now mm. as individuals is critically com important. Some radical acceptance, which is a psychology term of 
yep, this is extremely challenging. It's not the conditions which would be flourishing conditions for humans. So let's all cut each other some slack. Let's give ourselves some kindness and, you know, everyone hates the word kindness now, but it is important to be kind and compassionate to yourself um, and to treat yourself like you'd treat other people, you know. Mm. My husband says to me, Jackie, if we took a step back and said, what would it be like to have two children under two with two working parents in a hundred square metre house for X amount of time? How do you think people would think that would go? You know, and it's almost important to step back <laughs> and look at that and go, you know, that's not the ideal circumstance. No, so cool. let's just be let's just be kind to ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> just looking overseas where they've been in lockdown for longer um, and and also had the intense stress of the pandemic, you know, um, taking the lives of friends and family. They've noticed a, a, a phenomenon called quit-mageddon, which is where a whole bunch of people after a period of time have quit their jobs and not gone back to work. And when you look at the labour force participation rates, if you want to talk and economists speak, in America and in Europe, they're seeing initial signs of a significant drop in labour force participation amongst women, particularly with younger children. Mm. Uh, is is that something that could be happening here or something that we should be wary of or maybe there's not much we can do about it? Well, I think people have a particular bandwidth and families have a particular bandwidth. And at some point, something's got to give. And I think it's awfully unfair that potentially it's women that are taking the brunt of that. But I also think, again, that that's the nature and reality that can change but might not have changed yet is that women do carry that mental load and the and potentially in many families the big brunt of childcare. And again, that doesn't mean that dads or partners aren't aren't participating and helping, but I do think it's a different level of mental load. And so perhaps for many women, being able to feel like they are performing in different areas of, of their life uh, just gets too hard. And so, um, you know, potentially that's my baby in the background you can put that on your <laughs> podcast she's woken up she's not done her 90 minutes she's only given me 60 minutes um you know that actually over time families are making really hard decisions around what needs to change for them to continue on um and that might be a well-being choice that people are making uh but you also have to be in a financial position to make that decision that's right. For many, many families, they've built their entire financial situation, where they live, the type of house they're in, around having two people working full-time or, or nearly full-time. And suddenly being in a position where you can't do that, that's pretty frightening. And so the researchers behind the SMART model I spoke about before are very clear that as we continue living the way we're living, even once COVID, you know, once that we're vaccinated or, or life has some semi-normal, um, it's likely that a full-time work in the office uh, position won't return for many. You know, we know, for example, organisations are letting leases go and office space go mm. because they're planning for not everyone to be in the office at the same time. And so, you know, they've made very clear recommendations that for productivity but also mental health and wellbeing, uh, government, for example, need to be looking at how we support paid childcare. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got parents that are working from home, etc., what's the support that's coming to families to enable that to actually 
to when it actually happened, uh, you know, in a realistic way. And so I think that's been a societal look at if, if we're changing the work home model, what needs to be put in place for this to be sustainable. Jackie Maguire, thank you so much. That was a fantastic conversation and uh, I'll let you insert yourself back into your family life. <laughs> That's reality, reality and what we're talking about, eh, Bennett? <laughs> yes, in, indeed. Uh, Jackie Maguire there, a clinical psychologist uh, talking to us uh, from Wellington. Ka kite anō. Thanks. Fascinating there from Jackie and some free advice for me there, which was great. And thanks too to Rowan Simpson. That's When the Facts Change. We're a weekly podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank. And because we're weekly, you want to make sure you hit the subscribe button so you start catching the habit. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.